Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Is a weekend trip to a water park in your plans before the summer ends? If you're planning a trip or have already been to a tribal family destination complex, you're part of a growing trend that Tribe C is a solid economic development opportunity. A handful of tribes are putting in tens of millions of dollars to offer all-in-one destinations that include water slides, carnival-type rides, concerts, and high-end shopping. We'll talk about what goes into planning and enjoying tribal family fun parks right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The U.S. Interior Secretary's year-long listening tour to learn more about the federal Indian boarding school experience travels to California. As part of their Road to Healing journey, Secretary Deb Holland and Assistant Secretary Brian Newland will visit Riverside Friday and Ronart Park Sunday. Newland says he's been to a lot of the sessions, but always learns something new from boarding school survivors and their families. Many of them are, are elders now, and, and I try to as they're speaking about their experiences, picture them as little kids when these things were done to them. And it really humanizes this story in a way that's painful but necessary. The listening sessions are part of the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, a comprehensive effort to look at the troubled legacy of policies that tried to systematically assimilate children by altering their identities in a militaristic way. It's more than statistics. It's more than a policy. It's more than a law or a Supreme Court case. At the end of the day, these were kids in these boarding schools. The sessions not only document the physical and emotional abuse they endured, but also attempt to start a healing process. Trauma-informed support is offered at each gathering. Another goal is to develop new programs to revitalize tribal languages and culture to counteract nearly two centuries of policies aimed at their destruction. Blackfeet educator and leader Earl Barlow died last week at the age of 96. Montana Public Radio's Austin Amistoy has this remembrance. Barlow became known as the father of Indian education in Montana for his efforts to recognize the tribes during the state's 1972 Constitutional Convention. In a 2007 interview with the Regional Learning Project, Barlow recounted part of his address to the convention's delegates after he read a newspaper article that contained racist stereotypes about Native Americans. Is bigotry in the state of Montana a real concern? If it is, then you, the delegates, have a golden opportunity to strike a blow for tolerance by incorporating into this Constitution words to that effect. Despite there being no Native American delegates, Barlow's advocacy led to the constitutional creation of the Indian Education for All program. Barlow was born in 1927 and raised on the Blackfeet Reservation. After serving in World War II, he returned to Montana and began a long career in education. In 1970, he became the first American Indian to serve as supervisor of Indian education within Montana's Office of Public Instruction. State Democratic Senator Susan Weber attended Browning High School when Barlow was its superintendent. She said Barlow broke down barriers for indigenous people in Montana and encouraged Native American girls to pursue their dreams in a time when that sentiment wasn't popular. They never said that you could be a Montana state senator, you know. 
<laughs> that came a long way, and he was the first to show us the way. Each June 2nd since 2019, the state of Montana has recognized Earl Barlow Day in honor of his lifetime commitment to Indian education and indigenous rights. For National Native News, I'm Austin Amistoy. The Cherokee Nation has partnered with the University of Tulsa's Oklahoma Center for the Humanities to share the story of Cherokee freedmen and explore the tribe's history with black slavery. We Are Cherokee, Cherokee Freedmen, and the Right to Citizenship details the fight Cherokee freedmen went through to get their Cherokee Nation citizenship back. The Cherokee Nation says the exhibit serves as a tribute to the enduring spirit of freedmen and reaffirms the tribe's commitment to reconciliation. The exhibit opens Friday and will be on display through September 23rd. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have you packed a family into the car and headed off to an amusement park this summer? There's still time before summer ends to cool off at a water park or take in an outdoor concert. Family destination parks are a major draw for vacationers, and tribes are in on the mix, looking to expand their economic development portfolios. The Porch Band of Creek Indians just unveiled a $70 million expansion of their giant entertainment complex that also giant restaurants, shopping, and live entertainment venues. The Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians has a $75 million deal for a Tennessee theme park. Today, we'll take a look at the appeal and business of tribal family destinations. We'll also talk with a native architect about what it takes to create amusement rides that draw people looking for a thrill. Join the conversation by telling us what excites you about the prospect of tribal amusement parks. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's meet our guests. Speaking with us in Foley, Alabama is Kristen Helmick. She is the Director of External Communications for the Porch Band of Creek Indians. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. In Lame Deer, Montana, we have Major Robinson on the line. He is the owner of Redstone Project Development, and he is Northern Cheyenne. Major, welcome back to NAC. Hi, Sean. Thank you. Nice to uh, talk with you again. It's good to have you back, Major. And joining us from Newtown, North Dakota, is Dennis Bunner. He is the Parks and Recreation Director for the Four Bears Casino and Lodge, a business enterprise of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation. He is Muskogee Creek. How you doing, Dennis? Thanks for joining the show. All right, I think we're going to have to bring Dennis back in, but let's go ahead and start the conversation now. 
Kristen, I want to start off with you. And I'm looking at the website right now for the OA Parks and Resort. It looks like a really exciting destination. Please tell our listeners what park visitors can expect to see and do there. Absolutely. So the Porch Band of Creek Indians, when they had the concept of OWA, they wanted to create an immersive, family-friendly experience. So they looked to incorporate not only thrills and attractions through the theme park and the water park, but also an experience of shopping, dining, and live entertainment venues in downtown, as well as accommodations on site. So it really could be an all-inclusive experience. And where exactly is it located? So the actual um, OWA Resort is located in Foley, Alabama. And so if you're familiar with um, the Alabama geography, it's about 10 miles north of the Gulf Shores and Orange Beach area, which is Alabama's coast and um, home to more than 8 million visitors per year. It's also located about an hour and 15 minutes directly south of the reservation, which is in Atmore, Alabama. Now, about how far away do you draw visitors from 8 million a year? Are they mostly regional visitors or are they coming from all over the country? So the majority of visitors into the market are regional. Um, we draw a lot, obviously, from the state itself. Um, Georgia, Mississippi, and Louisiana is a huge draw for us, as well as Tennessee, so kind of the bordering states. But what we found is as we've added additional amenities and attractions to the resort, our reach has continued to grow, um, and we continue to move into more of those um, central and midwestern states as people look for ways to get out of the house and enjoy some time with their family. Now, do you compete with those big amusement parks down in Florida? I'm thinking Disneyland and Universal Studios, or is it more like you said, Mississippi, Georgia, that area in that specific region? Yeah, we do not find that we compete as much with those larger parks because, you know, for people that are traveling to Disney or Universal, those are really, you know, almost like fly-in markets because they draw a huge amount of international, you know, visitors each year. The OWA property is more regionally focused, but what we found is as people have, you know, continued to travel more and more these last few years that they're certainly willing to drive in or fly. Um, we do have two regional airports that were located kind of in between, which is most Mobile Regional Airport, and then Pensacola, Florida has an airport as well. So we are seeing some fly-in traffic, but the majority of ours are driving in for a, either a week vacation or a weekend vacation with their family. Kristen, that part of the country, it stays pretty warm throughout the year. Are you able to keep the park open year-round? Yes, it does stay very warm. Um, so we're currently at about, I would say, around 100-degree heat index today. So you, you hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, but, yes, we are able to keep the park open year-round. Um, in the wintertime, we have very mild winters, um, you know, based on the fact that we're so close to the Gulf of Mexico. And I would say that, you know, in December, January, like the lows could get around the 30 degree mark, but we rarely have anything that gets below that. Um, and the snow word, anytime somebody hears snow day in this area, they just go crazy because growing up in the area, <laughs> it's um, been a very rare occurrence. So we don't have to contend <laughs> with that. Well, when is the best time to go or is there a specific season that's especially busy? Well, I will say that summer, you know, obviously having a water park is extremely busy. Um, but what we find is that a lot of people, as they, 
you know, change kind of their patterns with their families and kids that are in school, and they may have a little more flexibility. I personally love the fall because the temperatures are a little more mild and you don't have to contend with as many crowds. Um, but, you know, our calendar as far as, you know, the busyness and the amount of people is certainly influenced by school seasons. So spring break, summertime are definitely peak seasons for us. And Kristen, how long has the resort been open and what inspired the tribe to to get into this line of business? So the tribe has always looked for ways to diversify their portfolio. So their primary business was gaming and had been um, gaming since the early 90s. They, you know, realized that gaming may not be sustainable in the model that they had in the state because currently they're the only federally recognized tribe. And so that means that they're allowed to operate gaming legally. But they wanted to make sure to sustain, you know, the tribe for future generations. And they started looking at other investment vehicles and tourism is a big business in Alabama. Um, they saw the opportunity with the property in Foley to initially come in as the bank and finance the project for a individual developer. And that developer had a couple of benchmarks that they had to hit and was not able to move forward with the project. So the tribe kind of had a decision. They're like, do we want to sell this property or do we want to continue to develop it? And they realized that it was a wonderful opportunity to form a strong partnership with the state of Alabama and the city of Foley because both of those government organizations were investing money major monies into certain assets on site. And for example, the state invested like $6 million to put a road system in that would connect the OI property to major highways. And the reason they did that is because the city of Foley, where the property is located, was putting in about $45 million of their own money to develop a sports tourism-based facility, which is an indoor event center and the outdoor um, soccer fields that they use. And they recruit, you know, competition teams all year to come into the OI property and they play on those fields and play inside that facility. And then we have the benefit of being able to house them at the hotel and then also them take part of the different activities in downtown with shopping and the dining and the entertainment. Well, it sounds like a business this large and in and, and this comprehensive, it just doesn't really work unless you have strong local and state partnerships like you're describing. And then also, Kristen, right. I, I think so often when when somebody thinks of an amusement park or a theme park, you know, it just sounds like so much fun. It sounds so exciting and be like, oh, that would just be the coolest, funnest business to ever own. But I'm thinking there's got to be a lot of risk with regard to, you know, the cyclical economy. If things go south economically, trips and vacations, that's like the first thing to suffer. And then, you know, some of the hurricanes and, and of course the pandemic. So overall, has, is the tribe happy with, with the progress and the success of OWA Parks and Resort? I think, you know, overall, they definitely are happy with the progress and the trajectory because they continue to invest in the property. And to date, they've put over $350 million of their funds into the ground. Um, so, you know, it's been open since 2017. And, you know, if they weren't happy with it, I don't think they would continue to invest at such a rate. Uh, you know, obviously there were some setbacks that we experienced through the pandemic. Um, Alabama was actually one of the more, um, I guess, aggressive states where they didn't have the closures that a lot of other places experienced. So the actual park was only closed for about two months. 
and we were able to open back up pretty quickly in um, 2020, or I'm sorry, 2021 20, when the pandemic happened. And so, you know, when that happened, um, it allowed us to really have people come out and kind of take their mind off of what was going on. And because the property is over 500 acres, it was plenty of room for people to spread out and enjoy themselves. And so we really saw great attendance like right after the pandemic and were able to bounce back. Um, unfortunately, we were hit by a hurricane that same year, direct hit, and mm -hmm. that did take us offline for a few weeks. But again, the resiliency of not only the tribe, but the community and the fact that people love coming to the Alabama Gulf Coast is certainly something that helps the tribe continue to see the value and invest. And in addition to all the visitors, how about jobs? Uh, can you talk at all about the number of employees that you have there at the park and resort? Absolutely. So when the property first opened in 2017, you know, they started out with around, I would say, 250 to 300 jobs. And of that, there was a, probably only about 20 to 25 percent that were full-time positions. Um, since then, as the project has continued to expand and more businesses have opened, the tribe has continued to invest themselves in individual businesses like restaurants, hotels. So they do have, um, you know, some of their own owner-operator type, um, you know, businesses there. We've actually grown to around 1,500 employees, and that number swells during peak season to around 2,000. And that includes part-time and um, full-time. We are obviously, as anyone um, in business nowadays, you face a lot of struggles with recruiting and sustaining workforce. And so the tribe is actually partnering with an organization to start construction on a J-1 housing project um, adjacent to the resort. And that actually will break ground in about two weeks. And so it'll be open by summer of next year. And the goal is, is to help bring in additional workforce resources to help ensure that, you know, we can maintain the wonderful experience we want for guests. Fun conversation here on the show today. Tribal Amusement Parks, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Back after a short break. A quarry in Minnesota has been a reliable source for the stone used in ceremonial pipes for dozens of tribes throughout the central U.S. and Canada. Other tribes elsewhere found their own local resources for making pipes. We'll talk about the importance of pipes and the methods for making them pass down through the centuries on the next Native America Calling. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're talking about fun today, and tribes are embracing the business of fun by investing in amusement and theme parks. Which parks do you like to visit? Does the idea of visiting a native-owned amusement park interest you? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest, Major Robinson, he's up in Lame Deer, Montana, and he's the owner of Redstone Project Development, and he's also had a long career designing amusement park rides. And Major, I'm thinking you were probably a big hit on Parent Career Day. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I've done a lot of those for our kids and for nephews and nieces um, quite often, kind of expose them to a, a new way of looking at things for, for Native, for native uh, careers, you know. Absolutely. Well, and it's just like every kid's dream. I mean, <laughs> when I was like 12 years old, I'd been like, oh my gosh, designing amusement park rides and roller coasters, that would just be like the ultimate job to have. Well, well, tell us, Major, what are some of the rides you've designed or helped develop over the years? You know, one of the first uh, projects that I worked on in theme park design was in Japan. There's a park called Piro Land that is dedicated to Hello Kitty. And whenever you mention mm-hmm. Hello Kitty, at, at least all the little, little girls know about it and some of the little <laughs> boys as well. And uh, from there, I also got to work with Universal Studios on the Cat in the Hat ride in Florida. And uh, most recently, I was working with Universal Studios again on their new parks opening up based on the Nintendo games, Super Nintendo World. So I worked on a park that opened in Japan and another one in Hollywood and a third one's going to open in Orlando, Florida. Wow. Wow. What a body of work. Major, I know the last time you were on the show, you shared that you were always very artistic, even as a child. And, and that played a big role in, in getting you into this line of work, right? Yeah, it did, Sean. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because I got my degree in architecture <clears throat> and theater at the University of Mexico in Albuquerque and uh, moved out to Los Angeles. And I was planning on doing architectural design, and I just fell into this nighttime job of doing theme park uh, set design. And so I always enjoyed drawing on the reservation at the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. Um, I always had my pen and pencil and colors and everything, and I'd be writing on anything, including my uh, cousins and and just drawing wherever I could. And then later on, I find out in life that I can actually make a, a living at doing that. Mm-hmm. Another aspect that I find so intriguing here is that, like we mentioned earlier, that this business of fun and, and you as a designer, you have to be able to tap into that. You have to be able to figure out, okay, it might work like this. It might be cost feasible. It might engineer from an engineering standpoint, it might be sound, but if it's not fun, if it doesn't excite people, if there's no thrill, it's not going to work. So is there a science behind that major, like figuring out, Hey, this ride is actually going to be fun and people are going to enjoy riding on it. Yeah. You know, that's a great question because, you know, you think of art and science and um, theme parks, and themed entertainment is really a good marriage of both the art and the science of it because there is a science. Um, and most people don't understand with theme park design and any type of attraction, whether it's a roller coaster or a dark ride inside or set design or restaurant design, it all starts with a story, you know. And, and we as Native Americans, we understand that, you know. We have stories that we pass on to teach our kids. And they're part of our, our history and who we are. And so with theme parks, it's the same type of science. You sit down and the writers that start to come up with this, you know, we can all brainstorm about it, but, but the people who actually put it down on paper and describe it, that's where it's worked out first for this kind of guest experience, how exciting you want it to be, what type of experience you want them to have. 
And then, you know, that passes along. And if we're lucky, folks like myself, I worked as an art director um, and set designer, get to work with those writers and influence what that experience is going to be. <clears throat> so we take that written word and we start to put pictures to it. So we start to draw things that is going to have, uh, you know, this great experience for any visitor that comes in. Wow. I'm just kind of imagining like what that whole process is like, that creative process. And Major, you've been in, in the industry for, for decades now. Has the technology changed a lot? And if so, does it impact how you go about designing rides? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's true. It, the te technology has truly changed. Um, <clears throat> I shouldn't mention it on here, but I consider myself a designosaur. <laughs> because I used to, when I first started drawing and designing, you know, it was just sitting down at the drawing board with, you know, your piece of paper and you're drawing it out, you know, and getting your ideas down on paper. And nowadays, and I've gone back to work for Universal Studios, um, and now it's changed so much. I mean, the younger designers that are coming in, they have incredible 3D design skills. So they're creating things, you know, right on the computer that allows you to walk right into those spaces. You know, we didn't have that capability before. We would use, you know, models and, you know, build models that you could actually stick your head into and experience things. We build and sculpt figures, you know, that you can look at and hold. And um, nowadays you can do that a lot on the computer, but I'll tell you this, the last park that I worked on, the Super Nintendo World, it was a marriage of both, you know, because we had to actually take those 3D models, print them up, and then be able to manipulate them and look at them and use them in different ways too. And the same with the 3D models, you can walk into a 3D experience, you know, on screen, but we would take that information that the designers did and actually mock up things in a model or full scale too. Like with Nintendo, we had to come up with designs that allowed the guests to actually play the game. So we have, if you know, Super Mario and things like that, you can actually go up to a block and punch it in real life. So we had to prove those things out. And you use technology, you worked with engineers who were just as creative as anybody else to come up with ideas of how do we execute this so that it a, has that guest experience, but B, can maintain, you know, a life cycle of, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, too. Major, I have a nine-year-old daughter, so all of these brands that you're mentioning, Super Mario and Hello Kitty, Nintendo, these are all very present in our house. And, and we were just at an amusement park last month, so I can totally relate to what you're describing with them being a much, the rides are a much more immersive experience like you describe. And they're also like really fast, like the roller coasters. <laughs> I, always, I always wonder, I mean, Major, how, how dangerous are amusement rides? We're safe, right? <laughs> First of all, <laughs> yes, you're safe. Okay. okay. Um, because there is so much testing that goes on with, with these attractions. You know, there's a whole, it usually takes, and I, I tell people this and they're kind of surprised, from beginning to end, from a writer sitting down to write about it, from talking about a concept to opening up the doors to a, an attraction, it usually takes about three to four years. And so through that whole period, not only are you designing, but when you get to the engineers, 
they're testing these things and making sure that they're safe and they're that the guests can have the best experience possible without putting them at risk. Um, but I will tell you this is that like with the cat in the hat ride, when we designed that and we had a vehicle that we designed too that could spin around so you can be within that whole ride and see every single corner of the ride, we had designed it to be pretty robust when it was spinning. And by the time that I came back a year later, they had toned it down a little bit. So I, I don't know if it threw a couple kids out or what mm. it is, but I think somebody <laughs> must have gotten sick along the way. So there's all sorts of adjustments built into the uh, into the attraction. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, like, you know, the, the motion sickness, because at my age now, like we went on some roller coasters and it was fun, but I'll tell you that next morning, I felt like I'd been through a washing machine. I mean, like my shoulders were <laughs> sore and my hips, you know, I just, I felt beat up because I mean, those things really fly. I remember when I was a kid, you know, they go like 40, 50 miles an hour. Some of those things go like almost a hundred miles an hour, major. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. But you're also strapped in so you don't go flying out somewhere. So some <laughs> of the so, some of the rides have, uh, you know, some people like the, the robust roller coasters. Others, you know, they want to do a dark ride where it's a little bit tamer and you get to see the scenes inside. So it's good to have the variety. Mm hmm. Well, Major, what's the trend for amusement parks? Because it used to be when I was a kid, there were just, you know, they were few and far between. But now it seems like what we're learning here on the show and all these tribal amusement parks that are that are being developed, um, they're just about everywhere in the country now within driving distance for most people. Right, right. They, they are, and they're becoming more sophisticated too, Sean. Um, you know, when you think of an amusement park, I remember growing up on the reservation here, living in Lane Deer, and you had the amusement park come in once a year, and they would set it up, and it's kind of a county fair, and you would ride it, and I look back on that, I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe I wrote the zipper or something like that. <laughs> but now, nowadays, it's much more sophisticated, and like Kristen was sharing earlier, is that tribes are understanding that you can diversify with these uh, destination resorts because not only is it the theme park but you have the hotels that support that the restaurants that support that the uh, live entertainment that supports it uh, some are marrying up heritage centers with them too so you can have a day of you know riding the rides and then another day of going to the heritage center and learning something about that particular you know uh, nation and so I think it is becoming more popular because tribes understand that they can diversify and have people come and stay in their homelands for multiple days and experience different experiences. I want to pivot back to Kristen and have her respond as well. And, and Kristen, do you see this trend of tribally owned and managed amusement parks? Do, do you see that continuing and expanding as the years progress? Um, I will say, um, from the position of porch, I can't speak for other tribal um, nations, but I can say for porch that, you know, they're really trying to focus on perfecting the OAuth project before they expand because it is a major undertaking to, you know, produce an experience um, that meets the needs of different types of guests in today's world. And so I, I can't, I can't give you a for sure that they're going to expand and grow. 
but I know that with the OI project, there can, they do have future plans for expansion, and they definitely are looking to incorporate more of the cultural elements into the park as they continue to grow that as well. And Kristen, were you a fan of amusement parks as a child? I was. I was a big Disney fan growing up, so it's all, it was a, a big honor to be able to be involved in the OI project from the very beginning and help with the branding and the concepting of it. So it was a lot of fun and excitement in those early days. I'll bet. Yeah, I sure sure enjoyed amusement parks too. I was a big fan. Major Kristen talks about you know, some of these like tribally themed uh, parks and perhaps rides as well. So it sounds like there's opportunity here for tribes not only to have a business model here, but also there are some cultural connections here and ways that uh, tribes can celebrate and share native culture through these parks. Yeah, you're you're exactly right with that, Sean. Um, one of the early projects that I worked on was for the Mashantucket Pequot tribe, um, and they have a casino called Foxwoods. And so, you know, they had that casino and it was working well for them, but they did want to diversify and try to create some more opportunities. And they built this beautiful heritage center there. Um, but they wanted some attractions as well. So I worked on an attraction for them. Um, and and it was interesting because it was it was fun to consider how this was going to marry up with you know, a, a heritage center, how you might want to incorporate culture into that. And, you know, I'll tell you right now, a lot of the projects that I work on now, well, actually 100% of the projects right now I work on are tribal related. They're not all theme parks. They're usually like a museum, um, schools, um, other type of cultural centers as well that colleges are making. And, and it's... Um, it's interesting. I, I like translating that theme park design experience to cultural design. And, and I like that tribes are really taking more ownership in that and, and have the economic wherewithal to undertake those projects. Because that way, you're kind of doing two things. You're providing a way to bring some jobs to the tribe, and you're also educating the public about who you are as a tribe. And so it's fun to work with tribes that are thinking that way and acting progressively. Major, it sounds like the sky's the limit here with some of these tribal amusement parks, but at the same time, there is risk. Uh, there are challenges and you know, you hear reports periodically of amusement parks closing, shutting down. Do you have a sense of, of what might be going on there with some of those amusement parks that aren't as successful and have to close down? You know, I, I can't really speak to those that are, are closing, but you, you are right. There, there are risks involved with it, but those risks can be mitigated, you know, if, if you're prepared for that, because this is an industry that has existed for, for decades, you know, and um, Disney's done it very well. Universal does it, Six Flags. And so sometimes what the tribes do is they can, they can partner up with those companies there are that don't know the industry a little bit better and can assume that that risk and help them uh, until they're up and managing it themselves. Um, so I, I'm not exactly sure though why some of these uh, some of these parks have have run into some some challenges like that. I think 
you just have to anticipate that as much as possible, you know. Okay. And Major, when was the last time you took your family to an amusement park? Last time was when I was uh, uh, working for Universal Studios, um, and it was a, probably about uh, four years ago. And um, it was down in Orlando, and we went to the park, and, you know, it's just, it's just amazing what, what's being done nowadays. Um, I was very fortunate, like I said, to work on Super Nintendo World, which had uh, three different attractions, ride attractions, restaurants, built environment, and then the interactive gameplay that we had designed, which had never been done before. So um, it's, always, it's always fun to take the kids and... Um, they, they, they go on more of the roller coasters now than I do. Um, I used to love roller coasters. I still do, but I take the tamer ones now. <laughs> yeah, I'm in that. I'm in that club too now. I can imagine you at a at an amusement park major, like really analyzing all the rides and explaining all the engineering that goes in. It'd probably be really cool to hang out with you. And anybody listening today, if you're a big fan of amusement parks, if you've been to an amusement park this summer or you're getting ready to go here, it's still just the beginning of August, a few weeks left to get out there with your family and visit a park. Give us a call. Tell us about it. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. This is Native America Calling. Tribally run amusement parks are our focus today. Does your tribe operate a water park, a theme park, or a family fun park? Do you think amusement parks are a good business for tribes? Or would you rather see tribes invest in ventures that are less dependent on lifestyle and recreational economies? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to reintroduce our third guest today. Joining us from Newtown, North Dakota, is Dennis Bunner. He's the Parks and Recreation Director for the Four Bears Casino and Lodge, a business enterprise of the Mandan, Hadatsa, and Arikara Nation. He is Muskogee Creek. Dennis, hello. Thanks for joining us. Hey, John. How's it going? Going great. Were you a big fan of amusement parks as a kid, Dennis? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was your favorite park to go to? Uh, I was a big fan of the water parks. Growing up in Oklahoma, the summers get awfully hot, so walking around outside a, a regular amusement park gets pretty sweaty. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine for sure. Well, Dennis, the three affiliated, they have the big draw there with the casino, Four Bears, but your work is focused outside the casino. Tell us more about the tribally managed outdoor recreational venues in and around Newtown. Okay, so Newtown is located right on the heart of uh, Lakes Kakawea. So we do a lot of boating and fishing. Um, this weekend we're having the Walleye Cup, and that's a couple of different uh, casinos get together, and then they all sponsor a big fishing tournament. So we have that coming up this weekend. Um, we also have 78 RV hookups with full uh, hookups of sewer, water, and electric. We also do offer a lot of primitive camping. 
as well as a like a South Beach concession type, where okay. you can rent like kayaks and uh, other fun outdoor fun stuff down there. And then we also have a big water park, which is our main main draw for the arbor here. Uh, All right, I want to hear more about water park and, and the walleye cup. Sounds really cool. I love to fish, but you you used the term primitive camping, Dennis. Tell us more about that. Maybe not all of our listeners are familiar with that term. What does that mean? So primitive camping is just uh, like camping in a tent, no electric, no water, no sewer, um, just set up and start a fire. <laughs> okay. So for those folks that don't have a big RV and don't travel that way, they can just have a simple campsite, relax, and enjoy the summer evenings. Exactly. Nice, nice. Now the water park, what year did it open? Uh, 2018. And what prompted uh, the tribe to take that uh, that venture? Um, so Newtown is really a rural area. Um, I believe our nearest Walmart is about an hour and a half away. Uh, so there's not a lot for the youth. So by putting the water park here, we employ a lot of the youth, a lot of the high school kids, um, as well as give everybody else a fun, fun destination to go to. Mm-hmm. Now, is this uh, a draw in and of itself, or, or do you find like a lot of families that come maybe to, to go to the casino and then, hey, this is something we can have our kids do while we hang out in the casino? Or are people coming in some cases just to hang out at the water park? Yeah, so we, we are actually expanding or growing. So we get a lot more people coming from surrounding areas, uh, even Montana and Canada, come down just for the water park. Uh, <clears throat> there's, I believe there's two large water parks in North Dakota, um, and they're almost similar in size. Uh, one's on the southern half, and then we're way up north. So we get a big draw just for the water park. And about how many swimmers can can you draw on a on a really big hot day? Uh, on a really hot and perfect day, we get about five eighty. Almost six hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Any any plans to expand anytime soon? Um, there's there's whispers. Uh, nothing in the plans yet. Um, we recently just got a lap pool installed. So at first we just operated with Lazy River and. Uh, three large slides, but last year we had a um, was our first year with our lap pool operational, and it's a, a 12 foot lap pool, 50 foot lanes, or, I'm sorry, 50 meter lanes, uh, 12 feet deep, and then there's also like diving areas and stuff like that as well. Now a water park, I when I think water park, I, I right away see the big slides and twisting and turning and, and the wave pools and. What type of engineering goes into that? I mean, you must work with, with designers such as Major and other people that have that kind of expertise. And about how long does that take to just take that as a vision until it's a, a fully functioning open business? Uh, the construction and the design aspect of it took probably about two years. So we went from starting with the meetings in like 2016. So it took about two years to get everything into the concrete. Um, <clears throat> we worked with Splashtacular. So th they did a lot of our designs as far as uh, amenities. <clears throat> and they were really awesome. They, they did all the designs and plans, uh, awesome explanations. Um, when I got the design plans, they were super easy to read. <clears throat> 
And during the pandemic, Dennis, uh, what kind of challenges did it create there at the water park and these other ventures that you have there uh, with the three affiliated tribe? Um, so as far as the camping, it, it didn't make too much of an impact. Uh, people were still able to get outdoors. Um, as far as the water park, we had to work with the state and um, we came up with a plan to just do strictly private parties. So we'd book out the whole water park and then we'd do um, people would rent just for themselves and their, their immediate families. Mm -hmm. Dennis, we were talking with Kristen earlier down in Alabama and, and those folks down there, they enjoy these warm, this warm weather year round. They can keep the parks open year round. Uh, you don't have that luxury up there in North Dakota. No. I know what those winters are like. So how do you folks uh, handle those those months when you just can't can't have swimmers, can't keep the water park open? So we, we operate from about June until the end or middle of August, and then we start our winterization process. Um, <clears throat> it's a long, stringent winterization process as far as draining everything, blowing out lines, refilling with antifreeze, um, it's a big cost, but it it really helps protect the park as far as uh, the water breaks and such. The winters here are really unforgiving. Uh, I believe it freezes almost six feet down. Mm. So everything above six feet deep has to get uh, antifreezed up and winterized. I imagine, so we, we yeah, get, a lot of maintenance so get, there. Yeah, so we only really get to operate about three months out of the year. Um, but it works out because most of our employees are high school kids and they go back to school the first week of August. Uh, I, we, we employed 36, um, high like, students, um, and they, they run pretty much the entire water park. We do all of our trainings in house. So, uh, we're, we are a Red Cross, um, sort or Red Cross training facility, uh, Mm -hmm. So we, we do all of our lifeguard certifications here, and that's stuff that the students can take anywhere in the USA. So they can move to Florida after school and then start lifeguarding down there and anywhere. So it, it really helps out as far as um, getting the students trained. <laughs> right, right. And um, what's, what's the, the, the pay like for those kids, if I might ask? So the lifeguards start out at $15 an hour. And then we also have a concession stand, and they start out at $14 an hour. Okay. So those are competitive wages up there for sure, huh? Oh, yes. And, Dennis, uh, tell us more about some of these activities at the at the lake, the walleye cup, and, and some of these other things you have going on. Yeah, so um, on, on, in our lake, we mostly have a lot of northern pike or um, muskies. I, guess, I think that's what they call them in Canada. And then... Um, walleyes perch catfish um we also have a lot of carp so bow fishing is getting huge down here uh, a lot of bow fishermen uh <clears throat> as well as like tubing and the boats and the jet skis um, we also rent those out from our marina as well mm. And Dennis, I know up there in Newtown, you've got a, a big oil and gas industry. You have a lot of folks that come in from out of town and, and they work there seasonally, working in the oil rigs. And are, are some of these ventures, these businesses, um, do they appeal to those folks as well, the people working in Newtown? Yeah, so we actually offer um, 
like groups, group rates and stuff. So like oil companies will buy 50 season passes and they're exchangeable. So like usually they'll have um, oil workers come work two weeks on, two weeks off. So in their on time, they'll give them the passes and their, their, their families can all come and enjoy the water park mm. while they're here. And Dennis, what do you love most about your job, being there, managing these different outdoor activities? What do you like best? I like being outdoors, and I like working with the children. I like the kids. Well, I understand you do young. some. I understand you do some coaching as well, in addition to to your job there with the tribe. Yeah, so I, I coach wrestling here at the high school at Newtown Newtown High School, and then I coach middle school and um, youth wrestling as well. And that kind of helps me keep my my employees. <laughs> <laughs> keep your employees centered, right? We'll use that word. It keeps them centered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I wrestled in high school myself, so I can appreciate uh, that experience that you offer as well, Dennis. Let's take a call now. We have Brenda, who's listening in North Dakota, Turtle Mountain, on station KEYA. Brenda, hello. What's your question or comment? Well, I just want to say that we are very, very excited. We have an indoor um, water park that's going to be open. Um, what? Okay. When's it opening? It should be open within 30 to 60 days. And um, we're really excited. I'm a, um enrolled member, and we also have a, um, a jump park. Um, you do indoor things with jumping and you know, like um, gymnastic things. Um, but yeah, uh, we're just, I was just listening to you guys and I found it kind of exciting, you know, that we have all these parks opening. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you called in, Brenda. This is a fun show, learning all about amusement parks from a tribal perspective. And it sounds like uh, fun times uh, lay ahead there up in Turtle Mountain, a jump park, a water park. Thanks for calling in, Brenda. Appreciate that. And okay. Dennis, it sounds like uh, you folks might have a little bit of competition there with a new water park coming into the state. Yeah, that's that's good. The more the merrier, really. The um, the state there's not a lot for the youth in general in this in the in the entire state. Um, like I said, it's really rural up here, so it's almost an hour drive to the next next town. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Because you folks are, what, a couple hours from Bismarck there in Newtown, right? Yeah, so we're um, almost on the complete northern side. So Bismarck's more towards the south. We're about 300, about 350 miles from Bismarck. Mm -hmm. And then I believe we're about 220 miles from uh, Turtle Mountain as well. And Dennis, tell us about the future. Uh, sounds like these ventures that are up and going are successful. Does the tribe have thoughts of expanding or offering some new types of activities in the, in the months and years to come? Yeah, so um, we're mainly f focusing on the rest of the we, – so we, we operate on a peninsula, and towards the end of the peninsula is that's our south beach. Um, so we just recently had some basketball courts installed, uh, a brand-new playground, I believe it's about 1,400 square feet. Um, there's also like a beach soft swim, swim area. And then as far as expanding, they're going to look to build more volleyball courts um, and tetherball and some other outdoor activities down there that are no, at no charge. <laughs> 
that dude just come and just have fun, fun in the sun. All right. Uh, tetherball. That's a, that's a game <laughs> I haven't played in a few years. Dennis, thanks for joining us and, and giving us all these updates and uh, details about these uh, exciting summertime destination activities and businesses that you have up there in North Dakota with the three affiliated tribes. I want to pivot back to, to Major as we wind down the show. And Major, just listening to our conversation today, listening to Kristen talk about what's going on there in Alabama, listening to a caller and and Dennis talking about North Dakota. I just, I just want to ask you, I mean, how important do you think these types of fun amusement park, destination parks are for, for Native communities? Well, I think that Dennis hit right on it, is that, uh, in, you know, in our Native communities, I think this is pretty consistent throughout, is that we're a very young population. You know, most of our population is under the age of 20. And so there aren't a lot of opportunities, not just to, you know, go out and play and experience that, but to work, you know, and to have a chance to work and also play as well. So, so I think these, these type of venues, these type of developments, they bring a lot to tribal communities, uh, including that economic development. Um, you know, our culture is important. It is important. But we also need to be able to take care of our families, be able to, you know, learn a trade and to learn how to work. So I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's a great avenue to not only play, but to be able to, to work as well. Well, Major, thank you for, for those closing words here on our show. And we are going to have to wrap it up, folks. We are just about out of time. But big thanks to our three guests on the show today, Major Robinson, Kristen Helmick, and Dennis Bunner, for sharing their expertise and perspectives on tribal amusement parks. Join us next week for another lineup of discussions about Native topics and issues. We'll start off exploring ceremonial pipes, how they're made and how they're used. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. We also had help this week from Roman Garcia. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our Chief Operations Officer. The President and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Until we talk again, I'm Sean Spruce. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it, carbon monoxide. It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled, yet it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed, and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is, enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. 
Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.